Welcome to Workforce Rx with Futuro Health, where future-focused leaders in education, workforce development, and healthcare explore new innovations and approaches. I'm your host, Vontone Quinlivan, CEO of Futuro Health. A new poll from the Wall Street Journal and the University of Chicago confirms a troubling trend. By a 56 to 42% margin, a majority of Americans do not believe that a four-year college degree is worth the cost. That represents a 10% decline over the past 10 years of the number of people who see higher education as a good investment. Combined with dropping enrollments and declining graduation rates, this adds up to a daunting challenge for the higher education community. Here to paint a fuller picture of these and other challenges and to tell us how institutions are responding is Paul Fain, a veteran observer of the higher education scene. His newsletter, The Job, focuses on the nexus between education and work, and he helped to create a related weekly publication called WorkShift. Earlier in his career, he spent 15 years as a reporter and editor at Inside Higher Ed and the Chronicle of Higher Education. Thanks so much for joining us today, Paul. Hey, Vaughn. Good to see you. It's great to have you here. All right, Paul, you know, I shared these statistics. How did we get here? What are the main elements of this erosion in the perceived value of the four-year degree? Yeah, I think it's obviously like a lot of challenges in our society, one that's been building for a long time that the pandemic pushed off the cliff, I would say. I mean, I think there are many factors that go into it. It's hard to, to kind of quantify which ones are the biggest, but I think the rhetoric around student debt and the very real concerns about student debt have got to be at the front of the class. You know, for me, when I saw the data that 50%, fully half of black college students who borrow to go to college will default within 12 years, uh, you know, to me, that suggested that something is not working in a profound way. And, you know, it's, it's not good for other folks either. I think the overall average is over 30%. Um, you know, you've got questions about institutions generally in American society. And I think, again, the pandemic really made life much harder for low-income folks who questioned where to put their time and energy and their money. It's troubling to see this erosion of trust in higher education institutions. I think there's a, probably a, a broader trend in that that relates to trust in media, trust in government. I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, Pew has done some research over the years about the overall decline in trust in institutions and society, and higher ed is certainly not immune to that. And, you know, I think unfortunately, and I say that as a citizen, uh, it's getting increasingly dragged, no news flash here, into the culture wars. That said, and I've seen polling to back this up, I don't think that's the key thing. I do think, you know, there is a substantial portion of folks who are conservative who feel that their views aren't respected on college campuses, sure. But the bigger thing I think is is just understandable doubt about whether the investment will pay off. But as you know, Vaughn, the vast majority of students are investing their time and money to get into a good career. And it's a crazy labor market. It's a strong labor market. But it's one that I think a lot of people rightfully, and again, driven in part by that concern about debt levels and how expensive college can be, who are wondering, is this going to pay off for me? 
And so what are you seeing, Paul, um, as responses from institutions as they look at this trend as well? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I, it's generalizing about higher ed, as you know well, is impossible. Uh, big, big difference between a community college and a highly selective residential four-year college. You know, graduate degrees are 50% of the student debt right now. So it's a big, complex market. I do think that, you know, the last 15 or so years, higher education accepted that there was more to college than just getting in. College access wasn't where the responsibility of higher education ended. I mean, you know this, but it's hard to remember. It's hard to really believe it. But there was a time when I was at the Chronicle that college presidents would come and talk to me and say, you know, graduation isn't our responsibility. We don't know why people go to college. You know, they'll look to your left, look to your right, who will be here in four years. That was still alive. Well, that's dead now. I, I, I don't think you're going to find a college president who doesn't say completion is part of our job. What happens after college, I think, is on now that kind of continuum of the next wave of education reform energy. The question of how much higher ed accepts it, again, depends on who you're asking. But I think, you know, especially in the last year or two, you've seen a real sea change in most folks at colleges saying, yes, we do have some responsibility to improve the economic mobility of students. And again, like one of the most important data points beyond that default data that I think changed the debate for insiders was Raj Chetty and his colleagues doing research at what is now Opportunity Insights at Harvard showing which institutions do move people up in economic and social mobility. And quite frankly, the, the results weren't great for higher ed on the whole. Mm, yikes. So getting in, completing, and then what happens next? My son is going went through the uh, college application process and many of the degrees being offered are exactly the same as when I had gone to college. And I'm wondering, how has the arrival of short-term and alternative credentials um, influence this ability to shape what happens to students after they complete college? Yeah, great question. And I, always interesting to experience this uh, firsthand with a, with a child or yourself uh, relative to in the big picture. Before I get into it, just very briefly, there was new data in the last week from the Upjohn Institute about hiring over the last year. And as you know, there's been a big push by employers and state and federal governments to open opportunities for folks without four-year degrees. However, this this new data shows that hasn't happened. That uh, you know, the folks without college degrees are not seeing higher hiring volume or wages. Who is graduate degree holders? You know, again, credentialism is a thing, and frankly, you don't hear many people in higher ed talking about whether or not X credential is necessary for a job. I think you will in, in coming years, but yeah, I think there are a lot of folks who look at their opportunities right now and say, I'd sure like to get started on a career faster than the four to six or seven years it will take me to earn a bachelor's degree. And there are unfortunately dizzying array of short-term alternative credentials. It's, you know, people overuse that term, the wild west, but I do think, you know, how do you make sense of it? 
especially as a prospective student from a low-income or first-generation college background. It's really not easy. Before we get off the topic of uh, skills-based hiring, so you, you mentioned that the Upjohn Institute shared some data that maybe the impact of skills-based hiring is still somewhat early. What do you think are, the, are some of the barriers to adopting that model more broadly? So many. Uh, but, you know, I also don't want to say that this is just PR or a flash in the pan. I think this campaign that Opportunity at Work in particular is leading, you know, they've got this ad council ad campaign, tear the paper ceiling. You know, it really makes the point that folks have skills even if they don't have a four-year degree, that means, you know, a two-year degree, an associate degree, they, they put in the category of stars, people skilled through alternative routes. Um, but they don't can mean work experience, can mean short-term alternative credentials. That campaign has been enormously successful. Again, I think because it's nonpartisan, I think, you know, folks on the left want opportunities too. It's not just the right, which I think has questioned the degree at the center of everything more historically. Um, you know, so you have, I think it's eight states now that are going to start prioritizing the hiring of folks in state government without four-year degrees, dropping the four-year degree requirement where they can. The federal government did this, began this in the last administration. It's something that this administration kept. How many things are like, are like that? <laughs> you know, you have continuity from uh, the Trump administration, the Biden administration. Um, so this is real. And, and I think government jobs can help drive that change. And you are seeing it and big companies too. I mean, part of the challenge here is Google and IBM say they're doing that. Google can hire anyone in the world that they want. You know, that's the top brand in the world. So I think they're endorsing this movement and they mean that with, with real sincerity. But I think the change is going to come at, at different jobs, at folks who, you know, that small and mid-sized business that figures out how to recruit talented people outside of just checking a box for a four-year degree. Well, there's persistent criticism that higher ed is, you know, ineffective in making a connection between the degree and getting good jobs or building the career. Paul, how should we interpret that? Oh, that's a tough one again. I mean, I think has higher ed done enough? No, on on the whole. Does that mean, you know, Vaughn, you worked in two-year systems. Does that mean that people at community colleges aren't doing their best with very limited resources to try to help people advance themselves? Of course they are. Of course they care, too. It's never as simple as higher ed is broken or not. Unfortunately, we live in an age where everything is black and white and easy and people have strong opinions about everything. And if anyone really knew how to fix what ails higher ed, uh, I'd love to see it because I don't think there are any easy answers. That said, I think we're starting to see, frankly, the limits of what higher ed can do itself. You know, Raj Chetty's latest findings, I don't want to short shrift his many colleagues who work on this too, showed that social capital actually is more important than educational quality. There's just really troubling data points that have emerged in the last year. One of the ones that got me, CUNY, City University of New York, always does very well, by the way, on the social mobility index. They're the best. They've done what they're supposed to. They've tweaked their credential offerings to try to encourage more students to get into STEM and to study things like computer software engineering. Their graduates in software engineering aren't getting jobs in the industry, and they're not being paid very well. The median wage for a graduate of CUNY software engineering programs, 45K, and only 50% work in the field. Why is that? If you want to work in Manhattan in a tech job, 
you probably need to go to an elite, highly selective institution still. That's social capital. How do we help people who are not privileged break into good jobs? That's an all-hands-on-deck problem. That's not just higher ed's problem. But yes, higher ed needs to spend more attention and effort on helping folks get a leg up. Are you seeing any promising practices other than trying to open the gates to you know the IVs and the, the elite schools? Yes. I mean, I don't want to sound Pollyannish here, but I think, you know, I'm in Washington, so it can be a depressing place to be when you think about the way higher ed is discussed. But I think policymakers, the general public, the media has a better sense of the scope of the challenge here. And again, that, that sounds kind of optimistic, but I, I mean it. I think there's better data to show how uphill it is for folks who are the first in their family to pursue a credential, how hard it is to graduate with a sustainable level of debt and to find a career that's rewarding in, in all the ways that you hope it would be. So I, I do think that the challenge is clearer than it's ever been. And I, I think you're seeing lots of kind of thousand points of light of exciting solutions, pulling it all together. I and mean, Futuro Health is one of those solutions. You know, I've written about what you all are doing. It's very novel. And I think a lot of people in the country are, are watching it. Unfortunately, a lot of the solutions and, and yours not being in this are very small. You know, I, I write a lot about interesting lower costs on ramps to careers that have 300 or 400 students. Um, so, you know, that's, that's another big challenge, but in for traditional degree programs, I'm also seeing really exciting solutions. Experiential learning is hot right now. And a lot of colleges are doing their best to connect students with that earn and learn experience. How optimistic are you on the apprenticeship models? It's a tried and true practices in, in so many areas. And yet it's so slow to be adopted in the United States and our company culture. Are you seeing any optimism in terms of um, a greater sense of adoption? Definitely. I mean, apprenticeships are hot. You're seeing lots of C-suite excitement about them. Also, you know, bipartisan interests like workforce education and apprenticeships are one of the only issues in this country where every politician in every state, they like them, um, which is exciting. That said, we spend a tiny proportion of uh, public funding on apprenticeships relative to traditional higher education. I think it's less than 1%. It's still very small numbers of folks participating in them. Um, so I think there's a role for increased uh, government support that you're seeing a lot of folks calling for that. But it's also corporate, let's be honest. Um, companies, they struggle to set these programs up. They're hard to do well. You're seeing the rise of a lot of intermediaries that are trying to help them do that in a turnkey way. Apprenticeships for America is a new organization that represents hundreds of them. And there's a lot of really exciting solutions there. But, you know, the thing to me that doesn't get talked about enough, a lot of the exciting apprenticeship opportunities are going to people who have four-year degrees. Turns out that privilege replicates itself. It's like squeezing a balloon, you know, I think that doesn't mean that they are, the most of them are doing that, but I, I worry about that. Like how are we going to set up this kind of growing experiential learning system to benefit the people who need it the most? What you say reminded me a story. I gained my first exposure to apprenticeship when I was working with an energy company for 20,000 uh, men and women. And we had these great programs where the company was just thwarted in terms of their ability to bring in good um, candidates. 
And one of the things they did was they would post the opening, but because they didn't have enough HR people to screen all the applicants, they would close it within the hour, mm. which meant that the only folks who would know about that window would be friends and family. So as you say, it's sort of like um, the privilege replicates itself because the, those are the only people in the know to apply in that one hour window. Yeah. So being able to look and diagnose like, where all the failures or the leakage in the system is so important. Like if you really want to be a, a honest about bringing in and broadening opportunity. Yeah, that's a great example. I mean, an hour, come on, that's, that's amazing. But I think I hear this a lot that companies are sincere about opening up experiential learning, you know, apprenticeship programs, even hiring to folks without four-year degrees. But at the business unit level or at HR, the degree remains the proxy for hiring. And there are folks, you know, I hear this a lot in companies that need to be sold on this, just like anyone else, it, you know, can we really hire quote unquote these people for these positions? I hear that that is a common problem, but I do think most large companies and even some smaller ones realize that they have to change how they do business and how they really think about who and how they're hiring. Hey, Paul, I mean, I guess sort of connected the dot between experiential learning and apprenticeship, but it's not the only model. Are there other experiential uh, learning models that you'd like to talk about here? Yeah. You know, I think, one of the things that I think the pandemic brought into clearer light is that people don't have good information about what's even possible in their career paths. Um, particularly again, the less privileged folks, you know, I, I've heard crazy stories of people who are interested in pursuing education, who work in frontline jobs. When they're asked what they're interested in, they say HR, or accounting because those are the only professional jobs that they've encountered in their lives um, through their, their work. So the idea that you should start in middle school, thinking about career options is, is getting a lot of traction among academics and experts who study this. And that doesn't mean tracking, you know, that means just getting a sense of what you like and what you're interested in pursuing. So those kind of bite-sized experiences where it's kind of low risk for both the companies and for the students, I'm seeing a lot of really interesting developments. Um, you know, Tulsa, the Tulsa school district is doing a lot to try to expose students to career opportunities, including, you know, short-term micro internship sort of work. Uh, this is, and it's not just Tulsa, this is something I'm seeing in a lot of K-12 and higher ed systems where one company I, I looked at, uh, Forage is an Australian company that's now in the United States, offers experiential learning uh, simulations to college students that are designed by companies and they're super short. I mean, I think some are like three to six hours total, or maybe even less, like 30 minutes, where you can say, hey, this is what it's really like to do what people do at JP Morgan. Am I good at this? Do I like this? And you can try lots of different ones. And you know, Parker Dewey's is a fascinating micro-internship provider that does similar paid uh, short-term experiences where, you know, the companies, when they see folks who, who excel and who like it, they can recruit from students who participate in those experiences. So it's definitely a big growing field. And I think everyone would like to see more of that. So is Parker Dewey creating these micro internships as a recruiting tool or more career exposure type of tool? 
I don't want to speak for them, but I think the idea is really putting the student first, um, making this an experience that's student-facing that gives them and, and and people who don't have all the opportunities that you know that I did going to a liberal arts college, uh, you know, people who are at regional publics who don't have a lot of recruiters coming to their institution, getting that real work experience you can put on a resume and also an understanding of what is entailed in, in college. You know, actually we uh, at my publications have used a couple uh, projects from micro interns with Parker Dewey and they did a great job. It was fantastic. And again, low risk for us, like let's throw a little money at basically a freelance assignment and see how it goes. And, and it went really well. And frankly, one of the students was at Colorado State Pueblo. Uh, we wouldn't probably have found otherwise, you know, hiring a traditional intern in that kind of traditional process. Um, but yes, to answer your question, this benefits employers too, and it can benefit institutions, colleges that want to offer this experience to their students. In a way, you almost introduced that that individual to the gig economy because you gave them a project-based work. Yeah, it is a thing. It's certainly in my life now. So, Paul, if you have a niece or nephew or children at this moment in time, and any thoughts in terms of how they would navigate the transition from uh education to career? Yeah. I mean, my, my daughter's seven, so I do have some time. Um, but I, I think it's a safe bet. You know, things don't change all at once. Um, are we going to just hire based on skills via an app instead of a PDF of a resume and a, a cover letter, you know, tomorrow? No. But are the days of a PDF of a resume and a cover letter ending? Yes. So I do think that some kind of machine learning infused scanning for skills of applicants is coming. This is a big part of what I report on. And it's, you know, really hard to see where that change is going to happen. But yeah, I think, you know, when my daughter uh, is looking at college, I think experiential learning and frankly, uh, some of those micro credentials that you tack on to a degree, you know, right now we're seeing just tremendous interest in digital literacy, uh, data science, you know, some of these, these credentials offered by brands, again, like Meta and Google or Salesforce that have a lot of penetration with people. People trust those brands as knowing a little bit about tech, uh, tacking some of those on to a traditional degree, whether through the institution or outside of it, will I think grow in the future. If I were to tack some of those industry value credentials and those brands, right, and those domain areas, and I were um, an English major, for example, the machine learning at least then now would be picking up something, you know, in more detail in its algorithm than just my English degree. So it, it helps round me out and actually gets me found. I would imagine doing the search process. Absolutely, and I hate to to throw a wrench in the works on that. Um, you know this, Vaughn. Uh, HR systems are not ready for that. Uh, even more than I think people think. There's some really intriguing findings from Northeastern. Uh, Sean Gallagher's team there has looked at kind of HR tech and how ready it is to search for skills, to, to unbundle credentials and to understand them more in terms of skills. And the, and the results weren't great. <laughs> There's a long way to go. But yes, I think most people are optimistic or at least pushing 
in this space for a way to do a better job than just, again, checking a box with a degree. I almost wonder, um, this is Bond's moment of wondering, you know, all these corporations adopted applicant tracking systems, right? And effectively, they screen people out. So even if, you know, Paul, you would have considered uh, taking a look at, you know, John or Joe or Juan or Maria, it's because they never even get to your front door. They never even get to your office. You won't be able to consider them. So in in a way, all the skills-based hiring and all of these things that we're doing now is almost a remedy to some of the efficiencies that we've put in place in the HR process. Yeah, and as you know well, with each development comes the risk of unintended consequences of screening again, privileging folks uh, who who need the least help. Um, that's that's a real worry with any of this kind of technology infused hiring. I do think right now the credentials, speaking broadly, have the most sway by far. I mean, I don't think we're at a place now where digital portfolios are much of a thing in many industries and hiring. Um, but credentials are, that's a broad term. I mean, and there's real questions, uh, you know, I feel like I'm throwing a lot of roses at Google, which is weird, uh, but you know, they're the Google certificates, they just dropped a new one in cybersecurity. Um, hundreds of thousands of people are pursuing those, you know, the, the many career certificates they have out now. So it's going to be really interesting to see the value in the job market for some of these shorter term credentials. Um, and it's not obviously just ones from big tech companies. It's community colleges, like the ones in Virginia developing short-term credentials with uh, scholarship money and kind of momentum points for students to kind of help encourage completion. I mean, some of these programs, we're going to really start hopefully to see whether or not they're working for large numbers of people. So Paul, I've been wanting to ask you this question, and it's actually about your your career. As a journalist, don't you get to cover anything and everything that you want so how do you pick what topic is um is most interesting at the moment and tell us some of these topics that you're looking at right now yeah well you know it's funny i think a lot of journalists think about this our industry has been disrupted as you may have heard um in a big big way and you could see it coming from a long way off even way back when when i graduated college you knew that the internet was going to do something to journalism um the days of me saying I'm a journalist who works for X publication and that's all you need to know are over in my career. You know, it's, I have to now spend like 15 minutes talking about how my newsletter fits with work shift, this publication with the umbrella of open campus. It's all very confusing. Um, but you know, the real key for me, I'm fortunate in this and frankly, it has something to do with being later in my career. I'm not beholden to anyone. I am I am truly independent. There is no agenda here. I'm also not a believer in me being an advocate. I'm a journalist who pursues what I see as kind of what's new, what's interesting. What do people in the field need to know or want to know about what's happening? And to me, you know, that's about following the money and to some extent tracking policy. Those are the two kind of north stars of my journalism. And I just feel like this this piece here, this workforce education, the focus on ROI and kind of developments and credentialing is one of the biggest stories of my career. I would say the biggest, you know, right up there with the pandemic. It was a no-brainer for me 
to, to pursue this because I feel like it's where so much of the action is, particularly about low-income Americans who've been left behind in education in the job market. It's hard work uh, to, to get them to that next level, and that's where I feel like the story is. The big challenge, though, sorry, this is a longer answer than I meant it to be, is that the clicks and the revenue often don't follow stories like that. So as a journalist and an entrepreneur, you have to figure out a way to write about where the, the really important challenges are in society, but where some of the high-end consumers tend to not be. Mm. So what are some of these uh, specific stories? Can you give us any insight? Yeah, I mean, I think to me, so the, the kind of overarching themes I'm most interested in is where employer and public funding is headed in terms of credentials. Like, are we going to see federal funding for very short-term programs through the Pell Grant program? That's that's a big one, as you know, in Washington, the workforce Pell debate. Um, states and how they're investing, again, like Virginia, in short-term credentials. What data we have and what we don't. How we can be better about knowing what works for people. That's part of all of that. Um, and then, you know, I think... Speaking in the broadest terms, the potential for better skills-based understanding of credentials, that didn't come off very easily, uh, but you know, the learner employment record space. Are we headed to a world where people can signal what they know and can do in ways that employers value? Uh, th those are the, the general areas I'm most focused on. Well, I get your newsletter, I think at like 5 a.m. and it drops and, and so I get to wake up to it and, and scroll all the interesting articles. So if the listeners would like to subscribe, where would they go, Paul? Yeah, so uh, the newsletter is called The Job and you can find it at Open Campus or at WorkShift, uh, two publications that publish it. Fantastic. Let's close with this. Um, so what are you most optimistic about? in the next 10 years? I do think that this is that rare issue that cuts through some of the culture war partisan noise that sometimes they come at it from different places. I think on the right and in red states, it's more about economic development and prosperity for people than equity. Um, but it's really the same thing. It's really, again, about finding ways to help people see a path and pursue a credential that gets them a good job. And, you know, I haven't really seen that much in my career as a journalist where California and Alabama are rowing in the same direction on a lot of this. Um, so that it does give me hope. And I think, again, it's that this, this is a big problem. I mean, you know this. I, I would put this challenge right up there with the biggest ones facing humanity, which is, I know sounds a little, a little bit much, but you know, we're in a, a society where wealth and income inequality has reached, frankly, almost, I would say a breaking point. Some of the confidence I got to start this newsletter were CEOs of big companies telling me society's teetering here. Like this isn't like a side issue for me at a giant trillion dollar company. This is really something that's going to make or break our country and the world in the next 20 years, where we have to find a way to give people a chance to make it economically. Um, and I, I just feel like 
if at least it's caught people's attention, it gives me some hope that there's going to be energy to try to do something meaningful. Well, we're so glad you're making us smarter about the possible futures and what we can contribute to that. So thank you very much, Paul, for spending um, this session with us. Well, thanks to you, Vaughn. The only way I can help make people smarter is by talking to smart people who actually do the work. So thank you for speaking with me and to folks who are listening, please do be in touch. Absolutely. Well, folks, don't forget to subscribe. It'll be in your inbox every week at uh, 5 a.m. I'm Vaughn Tone with Futuro Health. Thanks for checking out this episode of Workforce Rx. I hope you will join us again as we continue to explore how to create a future-focused workforce in America. Mm-hmm.